Let's go through Ephesians 3 together, and we'll start in verse 1. Now, just a quick backdrop. The book of Ephesians has been called the Swiss Alps of the New Testament. It's been called the Grand Canyon of the Bible, as we'll see at the end of this chapter. Paul talks about the height, width, breadth, and depth of the love of God, which passes knowledge. So it's perspectival, kind of like the Grand Canyon. Um, You'll see a lot of monetary, economic, fiscal terms strewn throughout the pages of this letter. So for example, Paul talks about fullness, which was a monetary term. He talks about uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, talks about inheritance, because The Ephesians would have understood this. Ephesus was uh, the great bank of Asia Minor. So it was a great banking center. It really connected commerce, passing from east to west, a very luxurious city. In fact, if you go there, you can walk on the same luxuriant marble white tiles that Paul walked on. You can, I don't mean like, oh, well, metaphorically the same, you can walk in Paul's footsteps. You can actually walk on the same tiles that he walked on. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. And um, the Church of Ephesus was incredibly influential. It was known as the third Christian capital behind Antioch and Jerusalem. So the, uh, the center for the church and also the center for missions. It was known as the third Christian capital. It was known as the uh, capital of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And not only that, but the seven churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3, they were all started through the Church of Ephesus. So through the Church of Ephesus, the, the seven churches that Jesus addressed Uh, really started through the funnel of this great Ephesian church. Um, Paul never has to correct the Ephesians. He goes to lofty theological heights, but this is a really, really good church. And and let's take a look at what Paul has to say, writing from a prison in Rome. By the way, during quarantine, I love how Paul, in his bout of self-quarantine in prison, social distancing in prison, like he wrote Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians all in one bout. What have you done since quarantine? You know what I mean? William Shakespeare in 1606 wrote King Lear, Antony, and Cleopatra, and Macbeth, all because he had to quarantine due to a disease that was spreading through England in 1606. So I don't know. What'd you do during, during, during uh, self-quarantine? Let's take a look. Ephesians 3, verse 1. Let's just go verse by verse through this. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Okay, well, The fact that he called Jesus Christ shows us why he's in prison. Here's why. The word Christ is Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And what this is, is basically he's calling Jesus not only the Christ, which meant the anointed one or the coming king over Israel. It can mean uh, either Christ, Messiah, king, or king of the world. So the fact that he's saying not Caesar Nero is Kyrios, which is Lord in Greek. He's saying Jesus is Lord. And they actually, when a king would come into power, you would, they would preach the gospel. And the gospel was the royal, the royal announcement that a king was coming. So like if, you know, if Caesar Nero or Domitian or Trajan or Constantine or Augustus or Octavius or Julius Caesar came into power, you would preach the gospel and you'd say the king is coming. And it was a cause for great celebration. And so Paul preaches a message that he calls what? The gospel. Caesar was called Lord, and he was called Kyrios. In fact, Caesar Nero's two favorite titles for himself were Lord and Savior. So <laughs> what does Paul call Jesus? Lord and Savior. Not only that, this, is, this gets kind of crazy, but there was a, one of the great imperial propaganda slogans was, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Caesar. 
So what does Paul say? There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus. Um, not only that, but in ancient times, Octavius, who was the adoptive uh, son of Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar died a year later, he was holding Olympic Games in his honor, and a comet flew through the sky, and he said, see, that's divine proof that Julius is ascending to the right hand of Zeus. And if, if, if Julius is a god, that's proof that he's a god. What does that make you if you're his adoptive son? The son of God. So that's really good if you're trying to rule with an iron fist. The son of God. I am I'm the son of God. That's who I am. So he's ascended to the right hand of Zeus. What does it say of Jesus? He ascended, Luke tells us, to the right hand of God. So, so Jesus is preaching this gospel message. Paul is carrying that on. He's calling Jesus Lord. He's calling him Curios. He's calling him King. He's a treasonous enemy of the state. Do you see why he's in prison? So like if we read this ahistorically as 21st century American millennials or whatever, we're like, yeah, this is boring. Like I, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. No, this is subversive. He's like, join the underground movement. Do you see what, it, like, this is dangerous. Like, this is, are you, a, are you an initiate? Like, are you in the underground movement? This is subversive. We're going to get killed and thrown into prison, but this is sick. And Paul's a prisoner. He's a prisoner. He's an enemy of the state because this was an incredibly rebellious message. I'm kind of anti-establishment by nature, so this really appeals to that side of me. Because a lot of people think, oh, Christianity is very safe, very domesticated, very docile. Uh, in Paul's case, you knock over microphones and you get thrown in prison. That's what happens. He gets thrown in prison. So he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. So you really got to understand that that's where Christianity was birthed from, this underground, groundswell, subversive, rebellious movement. Let's take a look at verse 2. If ye have heard of the dispensation, that word dispensation means implemented strategy. If you have heard of the implemented strategy or the dispensation of the grace, of the grace of, uh, of God, which is given me to you word, Verse three, how that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words. The, the mystery is the word musterion. Everyone say musterion. And it, and, and it means not something that you can't understand. Like that's nebulous. I don't get it. No, the word mystery means something that was hidden or secret that has now been revealed and made known. So back in the ancient Roman days, like uh, Rome really had such a massive territory. It basically ruled from India to England. And so these Roman soldiers would go to the East and they would learn what were called mystery religions. And you'd have to like go down into a cave to become an initiate. Very similar to Scientology today, actually. Like not very many people knew, like what do they actually believe? You, you would go down into a cave and it wasn't something you just intellectually assimilated. It was like a visceral belief and experience when you would go down to the caves in your bones and you'd have this, this, this visceral um, religious musterion experience and you would now come into the knowledge of that which was hidden. Paul then hijacks the idea of the musterion and he says, you don't have to be an initiate. He's going to make known what the mystery is loud and clear. You say, well, what is this great secret that Paul is keying us in on? Look at what he says, verse four, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I'm an initiate. I have knowledge of this thing. Like I, I, I've, I'm, a, I'm an expert in this, Paul would say, verse five, which in other ages was not made known of the sons of men and is and it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit in other words people used to like want to know what's this great mystery and now even though it was hidden it's finally been revealed through prophets remember there are prophets in the new testament like agabus 
who prophesied when he took Paul's belt off his body and bound Paul's hands. He said, whoever owns this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. There were prophets in the New Testament. There were apostles. The word apostle, apostoline in Greek, it means sent one. I love to send it. He's a send it pastor. He's like the sent one. If you don't understand what that meant, you should just Google send it. But anyway, he's, 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 he's a, a sent one. Now watch this, verse six, that the Gentiles, here, here's the mystery. You should be on the edge of your seat. Like, what is this big secret he's going to reveal? Can I get a drum roll, please? Because this is a big deal. This is like in all the ages of history, people want to know what does this mean? Well, he tells us in verse six, here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. There it is. That's the mystery. You say, that was anticlimactic. What a letdown. Well, let's read it again. This is actually far crazier than you might think. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, here's what you have to understand. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. We're talking about like Proud Boys versus Antifa, to use political <laughs> language today. Like there was, we think racism is bad now, and, and, and it is. It was horrible in Paul's day too. So the Jews and Gentiles hated each other so much, this is true, that the Jews actually believed that for the most part, Jews actually believed that Gentiles, do you wanna know why they were, God created Gentiles? Now, a Gentile, as you know, is anyone who's not a Jew. So that's a big group of people. If you're not a Jew, why did God make you? Why did God make Gentiles? He made Gentiles to be kindling for the fires of hell. After all, God needs a big fire. Like he needs a big bonfire for hell. So what's going to be his logs that's going to keep the fire burning? Gentiles. That's why they were born. Okay, that, that's the Jewish consciousness in that time. But the Gentiles hated the, hated the, uh, the Jews too. Now, Aristotle, of course, was a Greek, therefore a Gentile. And he actually said, remember how, you know, Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. Well, Aristotle, he basically says, uh, he said, this is kind of brutal, but you can read this in Leviticus too. Aristotle said that Gentiles, which he called barbarians, were the ones who tended to practice bestiality. He said, oh yeah, the, the Gentiles are barbarians and they're the ones who tend to practice bestiality. And Leviticus like warns against bestiality. You didn't think that'd make it to the sermon tonight. I wasn't planning it either. I'm going a different direction. <laughs> Basically, I'm just saying like, um, like they called them barbarians because uh, if you didn't speak the golden flood of eloquence that was the syntax and rhetoric and etymology and lingua franca of the Greek language, everything you said sounded like bar, 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 bar. You kind of sounded like a hick, like bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. It's onomatopoeia is what it is. Like bar, bar, they're barbarians. So you have these, you have these Greeks who are calling the, the, the Jews or anyone who's not a Greek barbarians. And then you have the Jews saying of the Gentiles, yeah, they're fuel for the fires of hell. And guess what Paul says? A miracle has happened. This is the great mystery that is finally revealed. The Gent and remember, Paul is a Jew. The Gentiles are now fellow heirs of the gospel. These are races that are at each other's throats and breathing down each other's necks. And Paul says, you guys are now one. This book was written 2,000 years ago that we're reading. Somewhere, you know, 80, 60 or something. I forget the exact date that Ephesians was written. But I mean, this is an old book. And how amazingly relevant is it today? 
I have never seen people more divided in my lifetime. And I don't think that's hyperbole to say. I've never seen people more divided in my lifetime than since this past year. Are you wearing masks? Are you not wearing masks? Are you blue? Are you red? Are you green? Are you purple? Like, like, like are you for this organization or that organization? And, and we have such a, it's so funny to be a pastor in these days. I, I became a senior pastor during COVID. So I'm like, is it always this crazy? Because I kind of got thrown into the deep end. No matter what you do, you do open your church, you don't open your church, you're in trouble either way. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? It's so divided right now, even in the church. A few years ago, the stat was 2.18 billion Christians separated by 41,000 denominations. Jesus prayed, may they all be one. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The Gentiles who... The Jews hate are now brought in. Race doesn't, race, racism is gone. He says now there's a unity, there's a unification. These people groups that hate each other, their peace is in the Christ dimension. In fact, I love this phrase. You can go back in Ephesians 2 and see this. But Paul said, Jesus is our peace. He doesn't say he gives us peace. That's true. Jesus said, peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world give, give I to you. But he, he said, Jesus is our peace. It's kind of like this. I went to a Coldplay concert about, I don't know, seven years ago or something. And the guy, it was at the, the Moda Center in Portland. It was the Rose Garden at the time. And there were 20,000 people there. And that's when they started doing these glowing wristbands at the concert. And the screens kept saying, put on your wristband. And I'm like, what is this, fascism? Like, why do I have to put on my wristband? They, they sang this song, Glowing in the Dark, and then everyone's wristbands started glowing. Now, that's like they're famous for that now, but this is the, no, none of us knew what was happening because this is the first time they did this. So there's like 20,000 glowing wristbands in the arena during the concert. The guy next to me, he was grouchy. He was, uh, when the, during the opening bands, he was not having it. I kind of pictured him the, being the guy, like if he spills Coca-Cola on me and is mustard from his hot dog, like he doesn't care. You know what I mean? He kinda, I kind of picture him being like that. But when Coldplay came on, suddenly I can't dance at all, but I'm dancing, he's dancing, we're all dancing. Even though we have different personality types, he's probably like a four on the Negram, I'm a three and a seven. Like he has a different, he, he might be an introvert, I'm kind of more of an ambivert. And like suddenly when Coldplay's playing, we forget our differences. He's not grumpy anymore. If he did spill some Coca-Cola on me, no big deal. Why? Because Coldplay is our peace. It's not just that they give us peace, it's that we have a shared fanboy experience with the same band. In the same way, we all, we all love the same guy. We really do, and I'm gonna say something controversial, no matter where you are on the aisle, like whatever you might think across the aisle politically, whatever you might think about masks or QAnon or Corinth, whatever your opinions are, can we not agree that like we have the same love? We have like a passion for the same king. And, and that's what unites us. The Christ who unites us is actually, I'm gonna say this, greater than the differences that divide us. And that's why this message can change the world. Do you see like, this is a mystery that has been hidden forever that these two groups which hated each other are brought together in Christ. He has wiped out the middle wall of separation. Actually, in the Jewish temple, there was a court that you couldn't pass beyond. We've actually exhumed through archeological digs a sign that said, if you're a Gentile and you pass into Jewish territory, you will undergo capital punishment and you'll be put to death. And Paul says the middle wall of separation has been wiped out, which happened in AD 70 when 
the general Titus, who would become the emperor, wiped out the middle wall of separation, thus making peace. We are all one. Isn't that an incredible message? This message can change the world. So in verse 7, he says, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace. I love the, the word grace. Tertullian defined it as the divine energy working in the soul. The grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Verse 8, unto me. You would think he'd be kind of cocky because he's got this grandiloquent calling, like I'm going to unify all types of people, one in the Christ dimension. But he says unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches, remember it was a banking center, Ephesus, of Christ. I'm less than the least of all saints. You know, Saul of Tarsus was schooled in Tarsus, <laughs> eponymously, and he was taught by this guy named Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel, who was like one of the greatest Jewish rabbis of all time. And he's, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he said he was blameless. He was zeal, zealous. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet he said, I count that all as loss. It's actually the closest he comes to an expletive in the New Testament. It's an incredibly intense word. It's scubalon. Um, it's basically waste, like human waste. I count all my achievements as waste compared to the, that what I once thought was gain, like economic profit, I now think is loss. Like the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, his grace, that's, I count all my other achievements as loss compared to the grace and gift of God. It's amazing because Paul, before he was a Christian, it said that he breathed out murderous threats against the way or the sect of the Nazarene, the, the Jesus followers. The Greek language literally implies a feral beast, like a feral beast. He was like breathing in and out. Have you ever heard a beast? Just I have a cat named Fridge, and he's like this fat, fat Persian cat. If you don't know what a Persian cat looks like, they modeled Garfield's face off of a Persian cat. They just have a flat face, like it just stops. And he just got a ton of fur and he looks like a little tiger. He looks like ba basically a baby Yoda from the planet Hoth. Like he's like a snowball creature, alien, extraterrestrial looking. And he like stalks around and sometimes like you don't know, you don't know like if he's around, but you can hear him breathing and you just hear him breathing. Like he breathes like this little lion. That's what it says about Paul and he's not like a Persian cat, like an actual animal, like snarling, breathing. That's how he was against the, the, the church, against Christendom. And Paul says, listen, I was, I was a bad guy out of ignorance. I didn't know what I was doing. I was persecuting the church. He says, I am less than the least of all the saints. And yet, is this grace given unto me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Salvation isn't just an individual thing. It's fellowship. Literally, it can mean we all have a share, like a business share only not for money, it's literally in the gospel. The fellowship of the musterion from which the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Christ Jesus. Verse 10, to the intent that now, this is crazy, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Let's unpack this really quick because this is intense. I know I'm going without notes and I wasn't planning to preach this message, but I'm getting psyched about this. Okay, so watch this. This is cool. He says, this message was preached by the church to the principalities and powers, the manifold wisdom of God. Three things I want to point out from this verse. Number one, principalities and powers are referring to angels. 
So there's like these cosmic intelligences. I'm like a big believer that spirit and science go together. You know, Christians invented science. So a lot of people are like, Christianity like has to go against science. Well, that's just historically a falsehood and fabricated because eight, seven, 800 years ago, William of Ockham and Roger Bacon were two Franciscan friars slash monks respectively who invented the scientific method. What I'm saying is Christians invented science. Now I'm a big believer that transrational and psycho-spiritual forces play on the battlefield of our neurobiochemistry. How's that for a sentence? I believe that the brain science and also the spirit world are more interconnected than we think. There's a lot we can't explain. We were talking about quantum mechanics today that basically atoms are relationships. We've found 150 subatomic particles. They're just relationships of energy that you can't predict both the position and momentum of a quantum particle simultaneously. So we're trying to come up with a multiverse. Like we don't know what's really at the bottom of this thing. What's behind the cosmic curtain. I believe that spirit and science actually go together. And Paul believed that there were these cosmic intelligences. He calls them principalities and powers. And watch this. We think of angels as ministering to us. And in the Bible, that's true. But this verse shows that the church is the one preaching to the angels. Look at this. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known not to the church, but by the church. In other words, through the church, by the church, this mystery is being revealed unto angels the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold can be used of actually Joseph's coat of many colors. It has many folds, many hues, many colors. The manifold wisdom of God. So we're, watch this, when we unify, when we love each other, when we become one and unify the manifold wisdom of God and fellowship and partake as fellow heirs together the mystery of God, the angels are like, that's sick. <laughs> that's in the Greek, joking. The angels are like, this is amazing. So we're preaching to angels through our unity. Isn't that incredible? Do you see how this message is so needed today? If you don't think it's needed, just go on Facebook for five minutes and you'll see that it's needed. Look at this, 11, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is really important to understand. How many of you are, are Jewish here? Do we have anybody who's Jewish? Okay, how many of you are not Jewish here? Would you raise your hand? Okay, so the majority of the people here are Gentiles. Do you ever feel like you're a rebound? Because it's like, oh, well, Jesus, remember when he said, I should come to give to the children first and then to the dogs, like Jews and then Gentiles. Paul said, I came to preach first to Jews and then to Gentiles. And we're grafted in. It kind of feels like we're a rebound, right? Like the Jews, like they're special. We're kind of like God's rebound. That's actually not what Paul says. He says, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and Jesus, our Lord, our, our curios. What's he talking about? The fact that we're part of this mystery. We're part of this gospel. Isn't that cool? So, so we're not a rebound is what I'm saying. Like, have you ever dated somebody and then you found out, oh, shoot, I'm a rebound. Like, they're dating me to get over that other person, you know? That's kind of how it could feel like, well, I guess God's like, yeah, the Jews didn't want me, so here, I'm stuck with you. That's not the idea. Paul says, no, we, we as Gentiles were ushered into the mystery that as, as an eternal purpose, which was purposed ahead of time, eternally, as far back as time goes. In whom, verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Is that how you pray? Is that how you approach God? 
Is it, I'm a rebound, I'm grafted in, God tolerates me? Or is it, no, I am enjoyed by God. He loves me, he adores me, I have boldness, I have access, I have confidence, I have faith. What if we talk to God like that? I love this, verse 13, wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul's the champion for the Gentiles, he's in prison. No doubt the Ephesian Gentiles are thinking, shoot, our main advocate is in a dungeon no doubt they were getting discouraged. You know, the word discouraged to me is a cuss word. I don't even like to say the D word. Because if I say I'm D-I-S-C-O-U-R-A-G-E-D, I'm saying I don't have courage. That's what it means. Discouraged means I don't have courage. It means I'm a coward. It means I'm disobeying the most frequently repeated commandment in the Bible, do not fear. The great ones don't get discouraged. Oh, you might feel it. But friends, we are called to be children of God. We do not faint or get discouraged. And say, oh, I guess I'm just discouraged. Guess I'm just discouraged. Really? Is that what you do when you go to battle? If you're a Navy SEAL, do you say, sorry, sir, I'm just discouraged? <laughs> no, pick up your gun and go march. Pick up your rock and go march. Paul says, don't, get, don't faint. It can literally mean, it's today's language, don't be discouraged. Because, watch this, if you fellowship in his suffering, you will share in his glory. But Paul takes it a step further. We are fellow heirs together and don't faint because my suffering brings you glory. Do you see how he switches it? It's not just if we fellowship in his suffering, we will share in his glory. In verse 13, he says that, watch this, my tribulations for you is your glory. I love that. For this cause, I bow my knees, verse 14, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is in prison when he writes this. This is kind of gross, but back then, dungeons were, like, we believe we found where Paul was when he wrote this. Prisoners would be stacked on top of each other, separated by grates. We're not talking about, like, cafeterias and Johnny Cash civil, or prison reform and watch ESPN and lift weights. Now, these guys were stacked on top of each other, separated by grates. So the guy on the top, when he goes to the bathroom, what happens to the guy on the bottom? We're talking, and for somebody like me who has this Purell with him at almost all times, my hand sanitizer, that's brutal. That's brutal. And yet he manages to get to his knees to pray for them. Just like Jesus, before he died, he said to his disciples, encouraging them, don't let your heart be troubled. In Greek, don't let your heart shudder. I go to prepare a place for you. So he prays, watch this, verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's church triumphant in heaven, church militant on earth. 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 50% of the book of Ephesians is a prayer. Did you know that? Half of this book is either a prayer, a prayer request, or a prayer report. And Paul says, I pray that you'd be strengthened with might by the power of the spirit in the inner man. I pray to the God and father of our Kyrios, Jesus Christ, from the whole family in heaven, church triumphant in earth, church militant is named, that you would be strengthened with might by the power of the spirit in the inner man. You don't need people's pity. You need the presence of the Prince of Peace to get his power. That Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted, I love that rooted is agricultural or botanical, and grounded, that's architectural, in love, fundamental, like the foundation, and rooted, botanical, agricultural. Ninety-some percent of Jesus' parables were nature-based. The deeper you can go in the roots, the taller the plant can grow. The deeper you dig the foundations, the taller the building can climb. So you should be fundamental and radical. Our word radical comes from the root word radish. 
It's a root plant. Radical just means returning to your roots. What should you be fundamental about? What should you be radical about? Love. Love, the mystery, we're one. That's what we're, that's what we're radical about. That's, what we're, that's our fundamental, that you should be rooted and grounded in love. And I love this, verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Everyone say breadth, length, depth, height. Do you know the early Christians, what they would do is they would get these little cross replicas as artwork and they would hang it up like that, actually just like that in their houses. And they would paint these four words from verse 18. They would literally paint height, breadth, length, and depth on the four sides of the cross. So height, depth, length, and width on the four sides of the cross to remind them that the love of God has all the dimensions. It has all the dimensions. And by the way, scientists now say there are maybe four dimensions. There's height, width, depth, and then there's also time, but that's relative and elastic and sticky. If you believe in string theory, there's 10 dimensions, but we can't prove that just yet. Look at verse 19. And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's another monetary term. The peace of God passes understanding. The love of, of the Lord passes knowledge. Verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do. Okay, he's about to use a super superlative in Greek. I love this. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power, the dunamis, the dynamic power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's the mystery that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would be one. So again, I just, during worship, I'm like, I'm going to just go through this chapter and see what happens. And as I'm going through it, I'm like, now I know I was supposed to speak this because it's so on my heart that we personally would be rooted and grounded in the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of the love of God, which passes knowledge, modern day language, which blows our mind, like passes knowledge. And that we ourselves would be rooted and grounded in love to encourage others, you are fellow heirs of the mystery. And if we can be one, and if we can spread this mystery, which was once hidden and is now revealed, we might just be able to change the world and heal a world that is torn apart by politics, torn apart by division, torn apart by denomination, torn apart by social media, torn apart by racial division, if we can take this message, we can heal our generation.